You'll find this hard to believe, but I really enjoy Christmas. I always have. I always will, I think. Christmas was always a big deal in our house. My mom, she likes to make memories, and so we would do all different kinds of things. And that involved every kind of Christmas movie imaginable. I'm the kind of guy that was listening to Christmas music on November 1st. Don't throw things my way. That's just the way it is. Um, all different kinds of Christmas movies. I've watched uh, Home Alone 1, Home Alone 2, Home Alone 3, Home Alone 4 already so far this year, multiple times. How many of you have ever uh, seen the movie Christmas Carol? Now shout out to me your favorite one, Alistair Sim. My personal favorite is George C. Scott. How many of you know that one? The one with George C. Scott is my favorite Christmas movie. And what I wanted to do tonight is I want to share with you the Christmas story. But you would expect that we would go to Matthew chapter 2, maybe Luke chapter 2 for the Christmas story. We're going to do something a little bit different. Can I have you turn with me to Revelation chapter 12? Revelation chapter 12. This is a little bit of Starry Night meets Star Wars. I'm going to tell the, the title of the message is an apocalyptic, an apocalyptic Christmas story. And you're probably thinking to yourself, oh no, what did we get ourselves into? But as you're turning to Revelation chapter 12, and we're going to look through verses 1 through 12 together, we're just going to walk through it and try to pull out some really helpful truths. But it's just a fascinating story that we find here in the book of Revelation. John is obviously uh, recording for us the revelation of Jesus Christ as we get here to Revelation chapter 12. And there's a fun thing, and this is going to be the SAT word. I promise I just have one. This is the SAT word. But there's this word that you might come across from time to time that Bible scholars like to use, and it's this fun word, and it's fun to say. The word is pericope. Have you ever heard that word before? The word pericope. I'm going to ask, uh, Tony, if you throw that slide up there. Pericope just means it's the definition of a narrative inside a bigger piece of literature, and for us, that is the Bible, is our bigger piece of literature. So you'll come across this word pericope, and I love it so much because it reminds me of being inside of a submarine. You know what I'm talking about? You're inside of a submarine. What is the only way that you can see what's going on above the submarine? You have to pull out your periscope. It almost looks like a very similar word, doesn't it? So for us, the Bible is like our periscope. So I'm going to ask you to pull out your Bible periscope. It might be on your phone. It might be on your tablet. It might be like my copy of the Word of God right here. And we're going to use this thing to see what was going on during the Christmas story that we read about in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 2? What does the Bible have for us as we pull out this periscope that was going on behind the scenes? How many of you have seen The Wizard of Oz? The Wizard of Oz, the man at the end of the movie, says, Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Well, for us, the Word of God is unveiling the curtain to let us see what was going on behind the scenes when all those things were happening in the Christmas story. So that was our first word, pericope, an extract from a text, especially a passage of the Bible. So what's happening as we pull out our Bible periscope? So let's read Revelation chapter 1, and we'll read up through verse 4. And the word of God says, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. And his tail drew the third of the part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, 
for to devour her child as soon as it was born. As if childbirth wasn't hard enough. A great red dragon waiting to devour your child would definitely be a little bit disconcerting, wouldn't it? So we have for us here a very vivid picture of something that the Word of God is trying to reveal to us. I think it would be good for us in any story to pull apart a few things to help us understand what's happening here. And the first thing that I want us to recognize here is what is the location? Where is the start of this story? How does everything begin? Well, Revelation chapter 12 verse 1 gives us a location, and there appeared a great wonder where? In heaven. So this story that we are reading about is beginning in the portals of heaven. God has pulled back the curtain for us, and he is revealing something to us about something that is going on behind the scenes. The location here is in heaven. And let's look at a few of the characters, because it's really good for us to define who these different characters are. The first character that we become aware of is this woman. That she is being with child cried, travailing in birth, and she's pained to deliver. So who is this woman? We think of the Christmas story, and immediately the mind goes to, well, is this Mary? Well, as we read later on in the narrative in the passage of Revelation chapter 12, we come to realize this Mary might be a picture of this woman, but Mary is probably not this woman. But the Word of God doesn't leave us wondering. When you read in Genesis chapter 37, verse 9, you're familiar with Joseph's dream that he has, and he sees Abraham and the patriarchs. He sees all those who have come before. And he says of Sarah that there were 12 stars on her head. What was God's promise to Abraham? I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And that nation, you won't even be able to number. They'll be more numerous than the stars in the sky, than the sand on the seashore. Is how many people will come from Abraham and from Sarah. So we determine from, from that in this passage that the woman is Israel. It's mother Israel. And something is happening that God is using Israel. He has chosen Israel for. So the location is in heaven. The woman is Israel. But we go from there. The dragon. This ferocious creature, this red dragon who is seeking to devour this woman's child. Who is the dragon? Well, Scripture doesn't leave us wondering who the dragon is. In fact, if you read Revelation 1 up to chapter 12, it already determined for us who the dragon is. But as you continue to read in the narrative here in Revelation chapter 12, we figure out very quickly who the dragon is. In fact, if you'll jump ahead with me to verse 9, and the great dragon was cast out, and the Bible over tells us, almost, who this person is. The old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceived the whole world. The dragon is Satan in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9. We also read about this in Daniel chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, about this old serpent that comes with all these horns, this grotesque creature who is looking to devour this child. But there's one more character. There's one more character. Read verse 5. And she brought forth a man-child. Who is this man-child who, who would rule all the nations with a rod of iron? Well, we know the man-child that was going to come from Israel. The one who was promised was who? It was the Messiah. That's revealed to us in Revelation chapter 12, verse 5. So as we get through this story, we have to keep our mind on where's the location. The location begins in heaven. Who are all of the characters? Don't worry, there won't be a test at the end. But who are all the characters? The characters are the woman who depicts Israel. The dragon who depicts Satan. And the man-child who depicts the Messiah that is to come. And obviously Satan, with every fiber of his being, wants to consume. In fact, the word of God uses the word devour this child. Satan wants to devour the Messiah. So in every good story, there are multiple plots 
that are happening. So here's plot number one, that we have a great enemy. There is a great enemy. Satan wants to convince you and I that we have nothing to fear from him. And we know that as we walk through the passage together, we will find out that we don't have anything to fear because of the victory that we've already received. But let us not be deceived to think that Satan is just going to let us walk through this world unencumbered. That he's going to attack us in every way imaginable because he not only hates the Messiah, he hates the people of God. True? 1 Peter 5.8 uses the same word again, that he is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. See, Satan doesn't just want to inconvenience you. Satan wants to annihilate you. He wants to annihilate you. He wants to annihilate your marriage. He wants to annihilate your family. He wants to annihilate your testimony. That is who Satan is. He hates you because he hates the Messiah. Let us not ever lose sight of that. In fact, Satan has one goal. So in this plot of our great enemy, he has one singular goal. And that one singular goal, his aim has always been the destruction of life. Satan's goal has always been the destruction of life. First being physical. Satan hates life. When he works in the life of two brothers at the very beginning of Genesis, what does one brother do to the other one? He murders him. Cain and Abel. Exodus, we see the children of God crying out because of this person named Moses who has to be put down the river to survive because the Pharaoh does what? He wipes out babies. Satan hates all kinds of life. You move into the Christmas story, into the narrative of Herod. He's threatened by his power structure being taken over because of this Messiah that he hears about. And what does he do? He starts to kill babies. Go to the prophet Jeremiah where you hear about this, this cry out in Ramah. What's happening? Mothers are being separated from their babies. Satan hates life. He hates all kinds of life because life comes from God, doesn't it? But that isn't where he stops. See, Satan hates spiritual life as much as he hates physical life. That's why he waits for this woman in travail who's giving birth to the Messiah, right? Israel, who's offering the Messiah because without the Messiah, we are of men most miserable. And he knows if he can extinguish God's plan, then the rest of us have no hope. He hates spiritual life. The thing about it is I think that we give Satan too much credit in certain areas of our lives. And we don't nearly give him enough credit in other areas. I'll give you an example. If you have a bill that comes due that you weren't expecting, we blame that one on the devil. Our car breaks down and it's annoying, we blame that one on the devil. Things just happen that inconvenience us, we blame that on the devil. But the truth is that the devil has nothing to do with that. That's just living in a fallen world. Things happen. Where we don't give Satan enough credit is where he tries to hinder us in every area that new life needs to be created. So when Satan is at work, when you know, when I know, I must bear witness of the Christ who has saved me to my coworker, to my family member, to that person in the community, I must share Christ. And Satan says, mm, I don't think you have enough boldness. Are you sure you want to do that? What is he doing in our lives? He is devouring the opportunity for new life to be born. When you and I know that we should launch out in faith, in some ministry that God has given us to do that might be difficult, it might cost us something, and the cynics come our way and say, are you sure you want to do that? That's going to cause you a lot of trouble. 
That's Satan working in our lives because he is trying to keep new life from being born. When you and I are trying to overcome sin in our lives, those sins that beset us, and we try to pursue that even though it is difficult, and Satan says, I don't think you can do it. That's new life that he is trying to devour, that he is trying to extinguish. Like I said, we give Satan too much credit for trivial areas in our life when the reality is we are so unaware of what he is trying to keep us from doing. He's trying to devour life. There's another way that he devours life. We said the physical, the spiritual, but there's a third way. Communal. Our community life. Read verse 4. See, because when Satan goes down, he doesn't go down by himself. He never goes down by himself. In fact, and his tail drew what? A third a part of the stars of heaven. Who do the stars of heaven signify? Well, Bible scholars might be a little different in their opinions of this, but most Bible scholars believe the stars of heaven to signify the angels. We read about that elsewhere in the scriptures in Isaiah chapter 16 and Ezekiel chapter 28 about the fall of Lucifer, the fall of Satan. He takes a third of the stars of heaven with him. You see, Satan is always trying to divide. How does he destroy life? He divides people. He tries to create a wedge. He tries to tear us apart. He tries to make us the enemy of each other. You see, Satan does things two ways. I'm convinced of this. He does this two ways. He will use the people that we are trying to minister to to get us to stop. My wife and I, we've served in the bus ministry a long time, her even more than I have. I'll use this as an example. You go out into the community, you're working with children who come from difficult backgrounds, and sometimes it can be a little bit of a difficult ministry effort. And sometimes Satan can use the people that you're trying to minister to to completely discourage you. You ever found that to be the case? He's going to cause us to pit against each other, failing to see that who's our actual enemy? He is. When we were trying to get this um, Bible study back off the ground in the jail, we had a time of training together. And one of the things we talked about is that oftentimes Satan will not only use the people we're trying to minister to to tear us apart, he will also use the people that we are ministering with to tear us apart. He'll say to us things like this, well, that other person isn't as faithful as I am. Or that person's ideas aren't as good as mine are. Or I can do a better job than so-and-so. If only they did, it would be better. But that's just Satan trying to use us against each other to divide us, to take us away from what is the singular goal. To breathe new life, which is the salvation of Jesus Christ into every area that God gives us to walk into. And he's going to use us sometimes to rip each other apart. So that what doesn't happen? New life. Satan hates life. He hates physical life. He hates spiritual life. And he hates community life. But let's keep reading. Because not only is he a great enemy, part of this plot twist is that he is a limited enemy. Read in verse 4. Because it says that his tail drew the third of the part of the stars of heaven and did cast them where? To the earth. So this location of the story began where? In heaven. But now we've moved. Where do we find ourselves? On the earth. You see, Satan's a limited enemy. He doesn't have total control to go wherever he wants to go. God has total control for that. And not only does he have limited space, look in verse 12. The word of God says, Ye heavens and ye that dwell in them, woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you having great wrath. Well, that sounds pretty scary. But wait a second. Because he knows that he has but a short what? Time. Now listen, God's clock doesn't work on our clock. 
Too many people have spent way too much time trying to figure out when all this stuff is going to happen. And God's clock is completely different than our clock. The point of him having a short time is that he has a limited amount of time. Aren't you grateful for that? Aren't you grateful that Satan in this war that he is raging has a very limited period of time because one day God's going to shut the door. And that'll be the end of Satan's oppression on God's people. So always keep that in mind because Satan's going to try to convince you that he's a greater enemy than he actually is. In fact, in this plot, he has one tactic. He has one goal, and that one goal is to destroy life, but he only has one tactic. You know what that one tactic is? Satan will use periods of life's brokenness to convince you that he can win. He's going to try to convince you at your lowest point that he might just have more power than he really does. I'll give you an example. Look in verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness. So who's the woman again? Israel. Israel is fleeing into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. So one thousand two hundred and sixty days equates to, in our time, three and a half years. It's an interesting amount of time, isn't it? Three and a half years. Because there's a perfect amount of time that we read about all the time in the Revelation and all throughout Scripture. What's that number that, that um, reveals to us perfection? Does anybody know? Seven. Seven is the number of God. And I was listening to a friend of mine, um, Dr. Kyle Sheeran, as he was doing some work on this particular passage, and he brought something out that I never noticed before. But he said this, he said, a seven and a three and a half that we recognize here, it's a broken seven. Isn't it? It's a seven broken in half. If seven is perfection, three and a half signifies to us the broken parts of life. Sometimes there is going to be some fleeing into the wilderness, isn't there? You've been there, I've been there, and it all looks different. It all looks different. But the promise here is that she had a place prepared for by who? By God. But in our moments, our lowest moments, our moments of brokenness, Satan is always going to try to convince us that he might just be able to win. You don't have to turn there because I think that many of you are familiar enough with it. But let's put the curtain back here for a minute. And go back to Matthew chapter 2 and Luke chapter 2 of what we know about the Christmas story. Because you think about some of the characters in the Christmas story. Think about what the coming of the Messiah did in their lives. It really created some interruptions, didn't it? There were some difficult places. You're, you're Mary and Joseph. Well, no one's ever heard of a virgin birth before. So you're going to get a little bit of a stigma that's going to happen when you give birth to the Messiah. It's going to be fairly inconvenient put you in a difficult place in life. In fact, if you read later on in the Gospels, people were still mocking Jesus over that situation. You look at other Bible characters. You think of the shepherds. The, angel, the, the angels appear out of the sky. What a powerful message. But if you were to tell people that angels appeared out of the sky, what would most people say? You're crazy. And rightfully so. Simeon and Anna, you know, they were looking forward to the coming Messiah, but what was Simeon? Simeon was the high priest. Anna was a priestess. Jesus' coming was going to change everything about the power structure that they had. Because when Jesus comes, we don't need the temple anymore, right? So each one of these characters, the wise men, think about the wise men. There they are in their far eastern lands. They recognize this thing in the sky, and they have to leave the comfort and the familiarity of where they are to go to the newborn king and worship him. All of it was inconvenient, difficult. But in every single one of those particular characters' lives, when the angel shows up, two words are always announced. 
Does anybody remember what those two words are? Fear not. Every single time, fear not. And each one of them received the Messiah with joy because think about what they would have missed out on had they not received those promises. But there's one person that doesn't. And I referenced him earlier. That one person, the Bible uses the word, he was troubled. And that's Herod. When he found out that Jesus was coming on the scene, he was what? Troubled. You see, there's a person that didn't have reason to fear not. There's a person that had reason to what? Fear. He needed to be afraid because now he is moving away from the agenda of the Messiah, of the great God and the King of Kings, and now he's on the side of the dragon. He's the one who's trying to devour the plan of God. That's a dangerous place to be, isn't it? But too many times you and I as Christians, we miss what the greater story that's going on behind the scenes of our lives, and we get so consumed on the inconvenience when the inconvenience might just be Jesus who is arriving on the scene. Let us not be on the side of the dragon, destroying life. Let us be on the side of the man-child, the Messiah, the King of Kings, who wants to restore life in every single area imaginable. 